Well, good morning, everybody. It's a great uh, pleasure and blessing to be here. Thank you very much, Marky, for inviting me. hope you don't regret that at the end. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure what to speak on this morning. Um, Jane suggested something, and so I'm going with that. <laughs> so my starting point, the, the, the talk I'm going to share is, is a kind of an amended, much amended and revised version of one that I first um, shared on a... Uh, Remembrance Sunday, which I is, is a day when I find myself having lots of different thoughts, uh, largely because I don't know what I think about war and issues around that. I don't know what I think about self-defence, defence of others, armed resistance, national engagement in wars. I'm aware that there have been lots of different Christian responses over the centuries. And today, there's probably a wide range of opinion, and I I find myself hearing both sides. I hear the case for, as a Christian, unqualified non-violence. We look at Jesus, and we see someone who is not in any way physically violent, never retaliates, uh, willing to go to the cross. You can't imagine Jesus you know, with a knife or a gun doing physical harm to somebody. And when we, uh, we, we have the, the, the passage that actually uh, was one that we're going to focus on a little bit this morning uh, from Matthew 5 as a starting point, uh, when Jesus says, uh, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, uh, you shall not kill or you shall not murder, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus exhorts us to love our enemies, to do good to all, to turn the other cheek. And as his disciples, clearly he is our model to follow, both in his teaching and in his life. As as Paul puts it so beautifully, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And of course, we know we have this relationship with God through what Jesus has done and the infilling the Holy Spirit, uh, which enables us now to endure all circumstances cheerfully and thankfully. So, you know, that, that seems to me to be a very powerful case for complete non-violence as a Christian. And then on the other side, we've got, uh, in the Old Testament, certainly there's wars that happen. Sometimes it would seem with, with God at the helm. Uh, we, I note that in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not murder. That's, that's certainly the Hebrew. It's been translated slightly differently in different languages, but the Hebrew is definitely to do with murder. You shall not murder, which allows room for war and allows room for legitimate self-defense, as it were. Uh, the New Testament in Revelation 19, uh, there's wars, as it were, with Jesus coming on a white horse with a sword in his, out of his mouth, bringing judgment. And we all know that we live in the good of what some wars have accomplished. And I'm, I'm glad about that. I'm glad that the Second World War was fought. And we hear about how on the day of Dunkirk, you know, the channel was like a mill pond and like got intervening to sort of push things in a certain direction. And I also think, and this is a powerful thing, I think. I think, well, is it just me being a bit squeamish and selfish? I'm saying, I won't pick up a gun. I won't kill anybody. But I'm very glad that you did. And that's, I hear that. And so I find myself kind of agreeing with both sides. Am I the only person in that boat, I wonder? Could you put up your hand if you kind of empathise with what I'm saying here? (laughs) Quite a lot of us, thank you. And I think, well, hang on, what's going on here? 
we've got the Bible, which is supposed to be this sort of source of great moral guidance. Is it so unclear? We're not quite sure what we think. Is it me? Am I being a bit thick, a bit soft, a bit indecisive? And yet, the thing is, the interesting thing, and this is what I really want to explore this morning, actually for me, what the Bible says in this area and in lots of others is actually overall very clear and helpful and has helped me greatly. And I just want to talk about that a little bit, about how the Bible's teaching, even though I don't know what I think about war and killing and self-defense in some kind of ultimate way, how it's actually really helpful and how I hear it in a way that, that I think is helpful. So how to understand uh, the whole area of kind of, if you like, moral behavior. We can see it quite often, quite easily, in a kind of school rulesy sort of way, uh, where you've basically got a big open space, like in this room, you've got a big open space, but you imagine certain red lines, don't cross this line. So you can go up to the line, but don't go over it. So it's a bit like the speed limit. You, know, you can go up to 30 miles an hour, don't go over it. And or the highway code. Uh, and you see this very often, like whenever, well, not whenever, but quite often, like with politicians when they're appearing on the radio or the television, they're being interviewed. Uh, they, they, they feel, they, they feel a, a strong sense of permission. They can go right up to the do not lie line. They can mislead you. They can conceal truth. But for some reason, they don't, they won't actually tell a lie. They'll sort of use any sort of weaselly form of words to deceive and mislead. And that that's fine, but they won't actually go over the line and tell an outright lie. And that's kind of how it works. And in a way, I suppose you could see the whole UK law and law in general kind of works that way. You've got the red lines that you can go up to, but not over. Like with your tax, a lot of people see tax as like some kind of game. You know, you can go up to the line, but don't go over it. And every so often in the newspapers, you hear about people who get caught out because, oh, my accountant told me it was fine, but actually oh, I've gone over the line, so I'm fiddling my tax as opposed to being just the other side of the line when it's perfectly okay. And that's kind of how it's seen. And so on that view, God becomes like some sort of head teacher and he's monitoring these red line boundaries. He's got his sort of CCTV everywhere and he's kind of watching us and, oh, you went over the line there. And that's what's going on. And we can see the Bible. We can read Jesus' teaching in that way. In which case, what we read in the Sermon on the Mount is a bit alarming because, of, because instead of the red line, do not, you shall not murder, being fairly far away for most of us, suddenly it's right up here, not being angry, not calling somebody a fool, not you know, being cross with people. And, and is, is what Jesus is saying mainly that you know, what are perhaps relatively trivial offences should be seen as the equivalent of much more, much more serious ones. Is being angry with someone the same as murdering them uh, and taken unreflectively you could imagine somebody thinking well in that case I might as well just murder this person then if it's all the same in God's eyes and I'm sure that's not what Jesus wants us to think so I'm, and I'm not trying to wriggle out of what Jesus is saying I'm just thinking you know because when we read the gospels a lot of the time we don't come away from it saying okay that's fine I'll just do that. When Jesus says, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. Okay, I'll do that then. Or if your hand, chop it off. No, it, what Jesus is doing, very often, is provoking an engagement with us. He's puzzling us. He's drawing us on. And this is appropriate because what we're about is a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, that we are being drawn into relationship with God. The, the, the parables... Most of the time, at the end of a parable, you think, 
Mm, okay. And you sort of having a think about it. And it is not, things are not necessarily straightforward and simple, but they invite further engagement with God. And so I want to just, just sort of focus a little bit about what I hear when I hear Jesus talking about being angry with, your, being angry with somebody as being equivalent to murder. So if we go back to our picture about, you know, this moral space, if you like, being like a big empty space with certain red lines. Now, I don't know anything about physics, and I'm I'm not trying to show off in any way when I say this, but apparently Newton, his view of space is, space is like a big empty barn, and you've just got bits that float about. And the, the, the big empty barn, space, that's not very interesting. What's interesting is the things that float about. It's like a nothing. Space is like a nothing. Whereas Einstein his view of space, is that space is like a kind of something. It's a fabric, this space-time fabric, in which, physically speaking, things live and move and have their being. It's kind of a something in which things are contained. And this something has, if you like, speed limits. It's like a kind of cosmic highway code. And the speed limit within this space-time fabric is the speed of light. Now, how does that work? It doesn't just work that you can go up the speed of light but not over it. What happens is, as you get faster and faster, and I'm sure lots of clever physicists in this room will know exactly what I'm wanting to say here, as you move towards the speed of light, things kick in to stop you getting there. So, apparently, you shrink, and your mass gets heavier, your weight gets heavier, and your time processes slow down. So, if you ever actually got to the speed of light, you'd have no length infinite mass, and your time process would have completely stopped. I found that a very interesting and weird picture, but apparently that's true. So it's not, oh, you can go up to the limit of speed of life, but you can't go over it. Actually, as you go towards it, there is an increasingly negative impact on you all the way, so that by the time you got there, well, you, you, you can't actually, because it's just more and more and more and more and more. And it seems to me, this is quite similar really to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't just see you shall not murder as a boundary you can go up to, but not over. He's saying, as you go in that direction towards murder, hating people, calling them fools, being angry with them, choosing or drifting in that direction towards murder, there is a significantly and increasing negative impact on you and on others. And that is what it seems to me Jesus is saying here. The message, so the message of what Jesus is saying is, go the other way. So he's saying, don't, through intention or through drift, allow your life to move in the direction of murder, even if you don't get much further than just being angry with people or being cross with people or being a, you know, whatever. Because it's negative. Any, any move in that direction is negative and will have a negative impact on you and on others. That's the direction of sin. Go the other way. So that's what Jesus is saying. Move the other way to life. It's exactly the same with Jesus' teaching about divorce. For me, the impact of what Jesus is saying about divorce is when you're married, don't just drift and then see what happens, but see your marriage as a one-way street to making your relationship really good so it's a fantastic blessing because what God really wants isn't He's not focused on whether you're going to get divorced or not. What God wants is for your marriage to be really good and a blessing for you and for everybody. Because a good marriage is a wonderful thing and it's a wonderful blessing. 
So Jesus' teaching about divorce, it seems to me, is to say, see your marriage as a one-way street to a place of great blessing. And don't let, don't let your marriage drift so you suddenly find yourself on the boundary, oh, maybe we need to get divorced. Just move the other way towards life, towards joy, towards God's plan for you. And so, if this talk is going to have a simply title, it would be simply Lifewards. Move towards life, towards all that God has for you, towards joy, towards peace. And at this point, I want to ask, well, what is life? What is this life that God has for us? This is what Jesus' teaching is saying here. Don't go towards murder, but be people who bring life, who have life, who know life, who want the fullness of life that God has for us. And God's biblical vision is very interesting and perhaps slightly underexplored, but his vision for human life is basically that he, he created human beings, it says in Genesis, to be a kingly, queenly, priestly community living together in justice and righteousness under God over creation. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. It means that we are God's deputies on earth, his kingly, queenly, priestly representatives on earth over creation uh, in fellowship with him. So uh, we get Exodus 19. Uh, God says to Israel, you are basically kings and priests. Uh, 1 Peter 2.9 talks us about us being a royal priesthood. We are kingly, queenly, priestly community under God over creation. And Jesus' New Testament mission, his going to the cross, enables our relationship with God to be restored so that this whole life human picture can actually be put back on track. Because if we're not living in fellowship with God, the whole thing just gets, gets thrown out, gets thrown off kilter, as it were. And obviously, if we're thinking about life being in fellowship with God, kingly, queenly, priestly community, injustice and righteousness, over creation. There's many ways, many, many different aspects of that we could explore. I think the angle I'd like to go up this morning, if that's all right, is to look at a little bit at the area of justice and righteousness, because I think it's often underexplored, but I think from a biblical point of view, it is very important. One of the things that sort of strikes one is that if we are created as God to be a kings and queens and priests, that means that we are created, it's kind of fundamental to our DNA, to be powerful creatures. We are powerful beings. What we do matters. What we do makes a difference, whether that's at, whether we're operating at an individual level or whether we're operating through structures. We are, you know, we are powerful creatures. We're able to bring structures into being, economic structures, political structures, all sorts of structures which, can, which do make a very powerful difference and impact. And the whole message of Sinai in the book of Exodus and in the Pentateuch, when God lays out his vision for his people, is that actually nothing is neutral. Because we are such powerful creatures, and what we do makes a difference, it's either heading towards life, or it's heading, sorry, keep the directions consistent, heading towards death, or it's heading towards life. Everything matters, to do with the scale of it, individual actions, families, communities, nations, and the content, the whole of life. So it's like in this sort of big Einsteinian space. Everything, every direction, at every level, matters. And so the Bible, God wants to give us godly wisdom so that we are always living in ways that lead to life, that promote life. 
I'm part of the kingly, queenly, priestly, justice and righteousness thing is around the area of distributive justice. If you look uh, in God's plan for his people in the promised land, there's a big emphasis on what might be called distributive justice. It's how wealth is distributed, how power is distributed. So to do with wealth, the land is equally divided up. Every 50 years, everyone goes back, as it were, to square one. Uh, Wealth is distributed fairly among the community. To do with power, they don't, they're not to have a king. God is their king. Of course, it makes sense because they're a kingly, queenly, priestly community together. Everybody has a space. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has dignity. Everybody is empowered to make significant contributions to build up the whole community under God in that place. And One of the beautiful things about this is that this has a tremendously powerful evangelistic impact. I just want to read from Deuteronomy, uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. So God is setting up his people to be living, as I say, this kingly, queenly, priestly community under God in this place of justice and righteousness. And what would be the impact on the nations around? He says this about, about the, the revelation and the, the teaching he's given them. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? And what's beautiful about this is that as God's wisdom for the whole of human life is revealed in and through the life of his people, there's a sort of recognition. God is saying the nations around will be a recognition because revelation without recognition is not it's just like seed that falls on stony ground but the revelation when it's recognized aha people see it and are drawn to it as they see this godly justice and righteousness being worked out they see a people whose economic life for instance isn't driven by anxiety it isn't driven by greed but it's driven by their relationship with God and their love of and their delight in justice and righteousness and building one another building one another up and having this community together under God and this is, this is further explored in Isaiah chapter 2, uh, when Isaiah uh, looks to the end times, really, and sees about how God's wisdom is in this way. We have the same picture of the, the nations, when they see what's going on among God's people, they want it. They want to be living in that way. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and be raised up above the hills. All nations shall flow to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he, the Lord, will judge between the nations and decide for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares 
and their spears into pruning hooks. They're going to stop going that way, and they're going to start going that way. Neither shall they lift up, sorry, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What a beautiful picture. But then what happens? What happens in, in ancient Israel? We know it doesn't, it, it got this godly wisdom just becomes ignored, becomes unknown. And in the very next chapter of Isaiah, just listen to what Isaiah, the prophet, this man sent from God, says to, uh, about what's going on in the land of Israel. He says this. He says, the Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes, the powerful people of his people, of God's people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean? By crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. I just want to talk about that language a minute. The word crush in Hebrew is very powerful. It's dak. And they think that it's called, it's dak, it's onomatopoeic, so it's the sound that it makes. And if you have a pestle and mortar, and you put some coriander seed in, and it's the bit you hold, is that the mortar or the pestle? I don't know, whatever it is, anyway. And you go, dak, 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 dak. And that's where the word comes from. So Isaiah is saying these rich and powerful people who've set up laws and structures to suit themselves and make themselves even more powerful and reduce the poor to a kind of slave-like mere existence. It's like you've put these kingly, queenly people into your pot and you've got your pestle and you've gone, that's what you've done. Or grind, grinding the face of the poor. What's that saying? You've taken these kings and queens and priests and you've put their faces, their faces, each face individually by God, you've put it between some big stones, and you ground them round. That's a very shocking, very powerful picture. Makes you ask, what is happening in practice? What does that look like? No one's literally doing that. It's hard to imagine any human being doing that to another. Perhaps Isaiah is talking to structures that have been set up that, in effect, do that, in effect, reduce people, their their, their lives, to this mere slave-like existence, which is hardly an existence at all, and all for their own economic gain. And of course, if you have this very sort of, as it were, Newtonian view of moral space, say, well, we're not doing anything illegal here, you know, we're not crossing any red lines, it's all within the law, so it's fine. Isaiah says no, because the red lines, one thing, the red lines are laws that you've set up to suit yourselves, but it's not neutral. How are you treating people? How how do you see these people? Do you see them as people you need to honour, fellow kingly, queenly, priestly members of this society under God, or do you just see them as people you you can make a few bob out of? How do you see them? And so the appropriate, what's the appropriate response of God's people? We see Isaiah here speaking out strongly against injustice because it matters, because it defaces the image of God, God's plan for humankind. It, it makes it that much less possible. We think of people like William, William Wilberforce and other Christian campaigners uh, consistently challenging. Again, it's this idea, you know, because it's... It's not talking about people picking up guns and shooting people, but you're talking about people strongly making a stand, actively challenging, but without needing to go to violence or killing. 
issues to do with slavery, to do with poverty. Uh, the Jubilee 2000 campaign, a very powerful campaign uh, where, where, again, some of the economic wisdom of the Bible uh, about re- releasing debts. As it says in the Bible, let people off their debts every seven years. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the world did that? Uh, the Bible gives us lots of economic wisdom, which is unexplored. I wonder why. But it is unexplored. And suddenly it comes to light, like the Jubilee 2000. It was some lady in an aeroplane. She read it in her Bible. It must have been a very a, a dusty bit. Oh, you're supposed to let people off their debts every seven years. Now, wouldn't that be lovely? And she started sharing it. A bit of revelation from the Word of God. And there's a recognition. Wow, that'd be really good. And people start thinking about what that would look like. So you get a campaign. People all over the world joining in. Not just Christians. M- many people, probably most people, not Christians. But it's unique wisdom in the economic realm from the Word of God. It's recognized. It's put into practice. And it made a difference. Wouldn't it be good if so much more of the, the wisdom of God for every area of life was explored and put out there, if you like? So really what I want to say is that it's church's task, it's the job of God's people, just like it was in Deuteronomy 4, to be exploring, modelling, articulating all aspects of God's vision for life. This kingly, queenly, priestly community under God, over creation, modelling the life of God. Uh, what, what God has for us. And it's a wonderful and very attractive picture. You know, we're good as a church at doing that in areas of sexual morality um, and uh, a couple of other areas, but there's so much, there's a whole of life, you know, that God has a concern and a passion for. I'm not saying, you know, everybody needs to be passionately involved in this or directly involved, but surely it has to be an integral part of what we're about as church. Uh, loving your neighbour takes many forms and they're all good. Um, you know, and the question is, how is God leading you? I'd just like to mention this book because I found it very interesting because you might think, well, the New Testament doesn't say very much about that. Well, the New Testament language actually is very much um, claims that were made about Caesar. Caesar is the one who brings peace to the world. Caesar is the saviour of the world. Uh, lots of New Testament language is saying, actually, Caesar's not that. Jesus is that. The phrase, Jesus is Lord, as you know, uh, all Roman citizens had to once a year go and say, you know, worship Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. And Christians will say, no, he isn't. Jesus is Lord. And the question is, who is the one who God has sent to rule and reign over the planet? And the Roman citizens had to say it was Caesar. Christians said, no, it isn't. It's Jesus. He's, the, he's God's authorised representative to rule and reign over this planet. And for his ways, his kingdom to come in every area of life. That's what Jesus is Lord means. has other meanings as well. But as far as the Romans were concerned, that's what it meant. That was the direct challenge to them. Who has been, who has been divinely appointed to run things here on earth? And the phrase Jesus is Lord... That's what it means. It means lots of other things. That's also what it means. And I just want to finish by uh, looking at one of my favourite biblical characters, and that is Job. And I just want to read a little bit from Job uh, chapter 29, verses 7 to 17. So I'll read it and then make a few little comments to finish. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. 
The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. What I love about that passage, those first few verses talk about the respect and the recognition of Job and his passion for justice and righteousness. Everybody is saying we're really glad Job is around. Everybody, the whole society the poor, the ordinary people, even the powerful people, actually, when they see Job and they see his passion for justice and righteousness and his passion for life in all its fullness, all rooted in his relationship with God, without which nothing is possible, we need that relationship, we need that wisdom, we need that daily empowering of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're all really glad, we're all really glad that Job is here. I note in verse 14... We get the first, there are three mentions as far as I know in the Bible of the armour of God. It's in Isaiah 58, I think, and then again in Ephesians. It's interesting here. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Job here is getting ready to do battle. He's preparing to intervene for others. He doesn't put the armour of God on to make sure he's okay. Make sure I'm okay. He's doing it because he wants to bring blessing and life to others. He wants to set people free. He knows he's going into a dangerous place. And so he puts on this in order to go out to intervene. And so for us, you know, the the reality that we can, we, we can endure in all situations cheerfully and thankfully does that mean that we just be that means that we can just be complacent and and indifferent to what's going on around because we're okay it doesn't matter what happens just so we're okay so we'll just let it all happen or actually is it about us being equipped the fact that we can endure in all situations means that we are equipped under God as God leads us and guides us by his Holy Spirit to powerfully engage as appropriate in lives of others in ways that will bring blessing in ways that will lead to life and I want to say about Job's philosophy of power we have a very sick I suppose philosophy of power in the world today which says that if you're powerful great use that to get more power for yourself if you're rich great use that to get more money for yourself we all know the sorts of things that, that people do and that happen if you're poor you're stuffed Job doesn't see it like that The Bible doesn't see it like that. Job sees himself as a steward for the poor, a steward for the weak. People who have nothing, well, Job's got lots of stuff, so his his bounty, his plentifulness, is a storehouse for the weak. He says this, I was eyes to the blind. 
and feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. People who are in need, Job wouldn't say, oh great, a needy person, I can make some money out of you. Job said, a needy person, I can help you. If you're a blind person, I'll be eyes for you. A lame person, I can be your feet. It's the biblical philosophy of power, completely at odds with philosophy of power in the world today. What does every nation say? We're going to act in our own interests. The stronger we are, oh, great. We can make everybody do what we want. We can become even richer, even more powerful, because we're more rich and more powerful than everybody else already. So we're just going to use that. It's not what the Bible says. And verse 17, finally, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, made him drop his prey from his teeth. Don't know exactly what that's a picture of in reality, if it's some lawless individual or some unjust structure, but it's people who are on the point of death. Job is rescuing literally from the jaws of death. That's the picture he's painting. So we have somebody here whose whole life is rooted in and directly flowing out of his love for God, his, his relationship with God, and also his passion for God's wisdom. God's, it's like the whole, the, the, his whole, the way he sees the world is different because he has the wisdom of God is like just there in his life and he's living it out. He's living it out. He's living it out and he's making a difference. And all those around him recognize it and say, good on you, Job. Well done, Job. They all stand or they withdraw, have respect for him. Isn't that a wonderful picture? A man who has a passion for the life of God. That's a passion for his own life under God. He loves it, but not in a sort of you know, complacent way. He loves it because as God's life is released in him, so he's able to bring life, to release life into others as well. And it's just just a wonderful and powerful and very encouraging picture. So, yeah, let's live lives that are lifewards for ourselves and for those around as well.